0: Hi, this is Stavros Yanuka welcoming you back to Wise Words, the podcast where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. Wise is an initiative of the Qatar Foundation dedicated to building the future of education through innovation. This episode is the fourth in a series of six that explore post-pandemic priorities for education around the world. As was the case with the previous episode featuring Berlin Fang, at the end of my conversation with our guest, I will be joined by Andrew Jack, Global Education Editor at the Financial Times, to reflect on the discussion and to exchange views on some of the other education issues that he is exploring. Before I introduce this episode, let me again remind our audience about why, when the world is still very much in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, WISE is choosing to focus on post-pandemic priorities? Well, for a start, we spent most of 2020 doing an in-depth exploration of education responses to the pandemic, both through this podcast and our Education Disrupted, Education Reimagined series of convenings, and the ebook that came out of those discussions. All of that can be found at our website at wwwwise org. So we feel that we have covered this ground fairly well. Moreover, Despite the worsening situation in many parts of the world, we remain optimistic that the accelerating rollout of effective vaccines will see the world turning a corner in the not-too-distant future. And in our view, this is precisely the time to start thinking about and planning for what comes next. And there are a couple of questions that are top of mind for us at WISE. The first set of questions revolves around how well we understand the scale of the challenge, both in terms of learning loss But also in terms of issues to do with mental health and well being, as well as the loss of socializing functions of education. And as a follow up to this, how well are policymakers and education leaders around the world preparing to address these challenges? The second set of questions revolves around the extent to which policymakers and education leaders are seizing the opportunity offered by this crisis to engage in meaningful and impactful changes to our education systems. There was, And still is a lot of talk about the need to build back better. What does that look like in practice? And are we really building back better or simply trying to go back to business as usual? With that, let me now introduce the fourth part of our new series, Post-Pandemic Priorities for Education. Brazil is the most populous country and the largest economy in Latin America. A region of the world that stretches from the US-Mexico border in the north to the Straits of Magellan that separate South America from Antarctica in the south. It is home to over 650 million people, about a third of whom live in just one country, albeit a very large country, and that is Brazil. More importantly, however, the region is currently where some of the most intractable challenges confronting the world are present in their most acute forms. For example, according to the United Nations Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean, The region is the most unequal part of the world, notwithstanding positive economic growth. Of equal concern is the fact that the region is home to the Amazon, the world's largest surviving rainforest and an important carbon sink in the fight against climate change. That is sadly being cleared to make way for mining, ranching, and agriculture at rates not seen since the mid-2000s. In fact, according to a recently published study supported by the National Geographic Society, taken together... All the activities taking place in the Amazon make it very likely that the region is now a positive contributor to global warming. So once again, what happens in one part of the world matters to all of us. Now, to help us navigate recent developments in Brazil and the broader Latin American region, and to reflect on the post-pandemic priorities for education policy there, it's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast another good friend of WISE, Claudia Costan. Claudia Costan is the founder and director of the Center for Excellence and Innovation in Education Policies, a think and do tank within the Getulio Vargas Foundation, a leading private university in Brazil, where she also serves as a professor. Prior to establishing the center, Claudia's career in public service included appointments as Senior Director for Global Education at the World Bank, Secretary of Education for the City of Rio de Janeiro, Secretary of State for Culture at the City of Sao Paulo, and Federal Minister for Public Administration and State Reform uh, in Brazil. During our conversation, we discussed the challenges confronting educators in Brazil as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic, including the scale of the learning loss, the different responses to the pandemic seen at the federal versus state and municipal levels of government, the initiative and commitment shown by many teachers to go the extra mile to ensure that learning continues to take place, even in the most challenging circumstances, the importance of capitalizing on the newfound respect and appreciation of teachers to invest in their professional development, seizing the opportunity offered by the crisis to pave the way to a more agile education system, the role that civil society can play in advancing the case for reform, and many more topics. With that, please join me in conversation with Claudia Costan. Claudia, a warm welcome to Wise Words.
1: So Stavros, it's really a pleasure to talk with you and uh, to everybody that listens to us now and later on the podcast. Harsh times, but uh, we are struggling to make them seem better.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. It's great great to have you uh, with us. And of course, I should uh, mention this is not the first time you've been involved with Wise. You know, you and I have... Uh, been on a panel together and you've you've been a a good friend and supporter of uh, of WISE uh, over the years. So thank you for being with us again.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure and also to be a member of the board of the Qatar Foundation.
0: Of course. Yes, I should have mentioned that our our uh, our parent organization. Claudia, before we get into the substance of our discussion, I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your center and the work that you're engaged in.
1: After coming back to Brazil uh, from the World Bank, uh, I lived for a while in Washington, D.C., uh, then for Of some months as visiting professor at Harvard Graduate School of Education, I decided to create a think tank that would be committed to changing the landscape of education through some effort to uh, deal with the leadership involved in education in uh, Brazil, which means subnational ministers, state level and municipal level, and also into preparing policy briefs that try to translate academic research into something that a subnational minister would read and get some recommendations, real practice. And, uh, well, it was founded in December 2016. It's quite active right now. We are in the middle of a big crisis in Brazil, as you may have heard, not only connected to to the COVID, but to the impacts of COVID. And so trying to ensure that every child that is eventually at home, not, not back to school as yet, uh, is learning to as a mitigating strategy to change how things are moving.
0: Claudia, tell us a little bit also about what what has the situation been like in uh, in Brazil and and more broadly in Latin America over the last year or so.
1: Well, uh, unfortunately, we've been hardly hit by the pandemic. Brazil is one of the worst cases in the world. Part of it comes from an inappropriate approach to dealing with the con- pandemic or some, I would call it uh, scientific neg- negationism or uh, denial. And, uh, and the situation has been that in ma- on March uh, 11, 2020, most schools were already closed And they have been closed, most of them, for more than one full full year right now, Uh, which is very saddening. But it's not only bad news, bad news. The subnational level ministers have organized themselves to ensure that in a way or another, most children and adolescents get some Learning at home or some support uh, in the case of early childhood education, some support for parents to deal with them at home, uh, which is also good news because a, a, co- a, a whole cohort of teachers went to the front lines to ensure learning for their their students. And this happened at the municipal level as well, be it through uh, digital platforms, but also because connectivity is an issue in Brazil. It's such a huge country and diverse uh, through textbooks, through TV, radio, and different media.
0: Yeah. So, so you know, again, important to, to note, of course, that uh, Brazil is, as you say, a huge, huge country. It's, it's a federation. And so you have, you know, at the level of states and municipalities, a significant autonomy in determining education policy and education uh, responses in emergency situations such as this so in in this regard not dissimilar to the kind of picture that we uh that was described uh with respect to India in, yes. in terms of of this multi-pronged approach high tech as well as uh low tech and no tech even
1: yes yes com- but in. but Stavros just one mm-hmm. a quick comment uh what we observe is that it would have helped if the federal government coordinated had coordinated the educational response to COVID. Uh, Because unfortunately, many, especially municipalities, many of them have four schools, three schools, so small municipalities that lack the institutional capacity to deliver a strong response to what is happening. Uh, The federal government did support at the end, but. it was very late to act on the pandemic. Uh, fortunately, though, teachers were very committed, and uh, they they led their state level or municipal level uh, government to act uh, strongly. And now some schools start to reopen, and uh, we are seeing what has happened during the isolation period.
0: You know, again the the you know the the incredible role that teachers have played, you know, during this this crisis is something that we've, you know, we we've heard from uh from from other guests on this podcast and again I I can't help but draw, you know, the analogy with with India where uh, uh Rukmini Banerjee who I'm sure you know as well, you know, shared with us some of the um Stories from from India of, of uh, uh, teachers going above and beyond their duty to help you know keep uh, education going. Can you can you share some insights of of, of you know examples of what happened uh, Yes. what is happening? I, sh- I should say not not <laughs> uh, not past tense. It's still happening.
1: Well, well you know that we have the, the Amazon forest where rivers are the main mean of communication among uh, villages and uh, and even uh, indigenous people uh, populations. And uh, so teachers were traveling by boat to ensure the delivery of some printed textbooks that could help or support learning, complemented by radio, so classes were transmitted by radio in, and in a, an asynchronous approach, some uh, learning, uh, some responses from the, 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 the students happen, And so... Parents later were able to travel by boat and go and give it back to to schools. So this was one uh, such story. But in Belém, sorry, in Manaus, which is one of the cities in in the Amazon, uh, the state of Amazonas, uh, they built some time ago a, a media center to ensure that the River population could have access uh, to learning in high schools because uh, uh, there were no, it wouldn't work to send physics teachers by boat three days to deliver a class and come back three days by boat. So they had worked in the past, something that Brookings Institution has even recognized as one of the 14. Best uh, practices of ensuring learning at scale. The center of media of Manaus, where teachers were delivering classes through satellites and uh, small classrooms were built for 40 kids that had already were already at school age, uh, high school age. uh, So so they, they, they could attend with just one teacher organizing the process of learning and interaction. And so during the pandemic, we could benefit from this that was built some eight years ago. And this was very good for Many cities in the Amazon, and uh, Manaus was one such case. Uh, another a case was a huge uh, flood happened in Goias, which is in the center of Brazil. So the teachers traveled on horse, on horseback, to to deliver printed text uh, textbooks to to the students. So many beautiful stories happened that show showed the the commitment of the the teachers so, but what i would love is to for us to learn from those beautiful stories and build it at scale so that we could have a educational policy that does not completely depend on such beautiful teachers but uh, support those teachers and just one other comment on that that parents discovered the potential of teachers in Brazil. So now there is much more connection between schools and uh, households and uh, between teachers and families.
0: Yeah. And again that's I I I I think you'll find that's a, a global phenomenon this this you know connectiveness between uh improved connectivity between the home and uh, and school, greater appreciation of the role uh, that that teachers pr- uh, play in education. That it's you know it's not an easy job, uh, as as we all know. But also you know parents themselves, I think, are are perhaps also the you know the the other unsung heroes of of this pandemic, uh, in terms of 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 their role in stepping in and and, you know, fulfilling, again, some of the, you know, the, the part play that a teacher would have ordinarily played. Um, what have you seen in terms of, you know, parental engagement with the education uh, process during, during this pandemic?
1: Okay, let me start talking about the half-empty-glass perspective, which is the fact that some parents were staying at home, yes, and... Uh, They were working from home, and so they were much more able to support their kids' uh, learning. But unfortunately, Brazil is a very unequal country, and social inequality is huge here. So for some families, more affluent families, it was feasible. They were supporting uh, the kids and they had books at home, connectivity, and so on. And young children need their parents' support because they are not uh, already autonomous to take their own decision and say, well, and understand that at 10 o'clock on the on TV there is going to be a class or on the platform at that exact time. Uh, but for Uh, schools for uh, school children in the favelas, in the slums in Brazil, that was not feasible. Parents were not at home. They were in the streets trying to find something to feed their children. Uh, So, uh, and and the economic situation got very, very challenging in Brazil. Uh, So, kids were at home with no supervision or just uh, uh, sibling supervision, which is not perfect. And they were crowded into their kitchen, for example, trying to to study, sometimes with one cell phone that uh, the whole family shared, or sometimes just with uh, having to attend classes in radio and they could not control the time and so educational inequality that was already very huge in brazil unfortunately got worse much worse uh, there are already some uh, assessments some re- learning assessment that discovered that not only Our learning crisis got worse. We had already a learning crisis before the pandemic, but inequality grew too much. But having said that, even those parents from very poor families did a fantastic work, sometimes supporting at night after a whole day of working outside, Many parents uh, were able to share their life stories, having time for their kids meant not only working at home, sharing tasks, family tasks, and so on, but also having more time to speak to the kids. And uh, talking to parents uh, and i have I've been frequently talking to teachers and to parents. Many of them were saying, "Well, I had." I built a new connection with my kids because I was more at home and uh, they were eager to have some social life or some social interaction and the connection, the bonding grew. And it's important to remember that affection and bonding is extremely important to develop the the brain of the children to build synapses and so on, so there is a half full, uh, a glass half full effect as well.
0: I I know, of course, that you know the the uh, Brazil and 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 the broader region is is still very much in the grip of, you know, the the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic. Um, you know, so so I say this with some you know some uh, trepidation that. Are are we able to 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 look ahead uh, and and see the end of you know of, of the pandemic and and if so, you know what are the, the the core challenges that you see ahead, but also what are some of the opportunities that you know we we could perhaps leverage to to achieve a perhaps a reinvention of education. You know, along the lines that you know that that many of us have been arguing for over you know over the years.
1: Crisis in humanity's history are very sad times, and this is no exception to that. Uh, So many lives lost to the pandemic, so much suffering, the economic crisis. So there is a lot of suffering, but crises are also opportunities. And uh, I think the Latin American region will face some of of the opportunities that that were built, especially if we learn the lessons from this period. Paradigm changes are typical of typical of these times of crisis, and we have learned many lessons. First, that connectivity is not something just uh, something sophisticated that it's nice to speak, but it doesn't mean anything in education. Connectivity showed itself something as something very important for the future. It became like. Human right, the right to have access to the internet became important, especially vital for education, but also for health. In the sense that, uh, that medicine, uh, health providers uh, provide uh, provision was uh, showed itself important. Uh, in addition to that, we have. Accelerated some trends that would have taken in Latin America probably more five to ten years, with the exception of Uruguay, where uh, digital inclusion is huge. It's a small country, it's, uh, but but they invested in them a lot since Sebao time, and uh, and the Sebao Foundation played a major role in preparing the educational response. And so some lessons that were built is, yes, connectivity is vital. Second, the teaching profession not only got more visible in its complexity, but we realized that we should uh, improve pre-service education, building in it uh, much more a much more practical approach. It's not enough to provide theory to future teachers, to the most complex of the professions. It's important to connect theory and praxis. That was something that we have learned during this period. And also with professional development, we should prepare for hybrid learning not only looking at the equipment and connectivities but how we build a much a much more hands-on approach to learning working on student engagement and student agency in the process of uh, of learning i don't believe then when classes return Uh, When schools reopen in most of Latin America, we will return to the same school. We will return to a school where teachers are much more valued and are eager to be prepared for times of revolution 4.0, where it's not enough to teach basic skills to, to kids, but teach them how to Think critically, think deeply. Uh, Collaboration will become a major uh, trend among students, but among teachers as well. Teaching is not a solitary profession. It's something that we build in teams. And that's how we would be able to change education.
0: Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot in what you've, you know, what, what you've uh, uh, said there, Claudia. And I think, you know, you touch on, you know, obviously the role of technology, uh, but also really the, the the primacy of of human connection, if I can, you know, if I can put it in those terms, um, that's still critical. What have you seen in terms of, you know, teacher training? Because, you know, I think the aspiration that you've expressed that, you know, we're going to go back into a, you know, a different classroom. Some of that requires, you know, teachers to receive a lot more attention in terms of their training and professional development. And you mentioned that um, uh, as well. What have you seen happening at, at, at the moment in Brazil and uh, and Latin America that leads you to be optimistic that indeed we're going to see greater investment in the uh, professional development of our teachers
1: well stavros i have to make a disclaimer i'm an optimistic person so it's easy for me to see the the to to build some wishful thinking but uh, there was some research done especially in brazil uh, on how the teachers connected to the challenges they faced during these harsh times. And they were quite challenging for teachers because many teachers also had their kids at home and uh, they were trying to work through uh, means that they were not prepared for. But something that they revealed, they, they were, uh, there is an institute that is called Peninsula Uh, Institute that did some research at the beginning of the pandemic and then by the end of 2020 with teachers, with a huge uh, number of teachers. And what they discovered is that at the beginning, they were getting frustrated, burnout, uh, feeling unprepared to use digital devices Uh, or TV uh, or radio, but at the end of the year, they expressed some uh, satisfaction with uh, having successfully faced the challenge. So uh, they learned by themselves. It's not that there was a national effort to train the teachers, But if they were able to reinvent themselves in such a way, and even feeling some pride from this achievement, if we develop good education policies connected to teachers, it's going to be feasible. And this is not only a Brazilian uh, achievement. It's also in Argentina, I've been following them as well. Uruguay, I mentioned already. In Dominican Republic, in uh, Colombia, teachers learned by themselves. And now what we have to do is to build on what they have already achieved. And one advice I would give to governments, not only in Latin America region, is discover the talents that were developed during this period and make them the trainers of other teachers. Instead of hiring very expensive uh, uh, trainer providers, discover the teachers of your own countries that were successful in teaching in another way. Because when we go back to school, to a school perhaps reinvented, we will need the same part of the same skills that were needed in these times of emergency,
0: Now that, that, that is interesting. Now, you, you know, you mentioned also earlier that, uh, you know, obviously there'd been some research that, that shows, you know, significant learning loss um, having, you know, taken place particularly amongst um, underprivileged uh, uh, children in underprivileged communities. What are some of the thoughts that you have or, or what are you seeing in terms of of policy responses to address the learning loss?
1: Well, the learning loss happens because it's not the same thing to teach at a distance than teaching with a human connection. And there are ways to diminish this. And and this is quite challenging for children more than adults. Yes, adults can go to a virtual university and uh, not feel so much loss, but we uh, we we have to to remember that that the cortex, the the part of the brain that is capable of uh, of auto regulation, is only fully developed by the age of twenty five. So. Children have much more difficulty with this uh, distance, even if the teacher's appears on screen. Uh, so, learning losses. Happen uh, along different uh, social classes, and but it hurt certainly more harshly poor children. And uh, and what we we have to do about it is first to diagnose precisely what were those learning losses. Uh, Some things were learned even in isolation because we had all to adapt to a different circumstances and one of the 21st century skills is adaptation so we developed some social and emotional skills and depending on the strategy of mitigation of learning losses At a distance, perhaps some kids also acquired uh, new learnings or cognitive learnings. But we have to uh, do some diagnosis of of what were exactly the learning losses and create a system of uh, remedial education that could address each child at his or her loss In addition to that, uh, technology might be an accelerator of learning. So, yes, we won't have everything ready for recovering learning and for levelling the playing field. Uh, But technology being put to be good use, for example, adaptive platforms and gamified solutions, uh, can support good teachers that are able to curate content. And it, this will, might eventually help a lot. But ju- let me just give you one example to show the gravity of the... When assessed fifth grade children uh, at the age of 10 or 11 from the state of Sao Paulo, uh, there, we have a, every two years a uh, national assessment, and uh, they showed their performance went back to the one that we had eleven years ago. So it's as if all the progress that we have been building in fifth in fifth grade kids had been lost. I don't believe it's lost forever. I think if we build good strategies to uh, of remedial education and at the same time, we support good teachers, we will recover and when everything ends, i hopefully this pandemic will be out of the scene. we will have built not only learning, significant learning for kids recovering their losses, but also professional learning for teachers to go, as I mentioned before, go back to a different education where inequalities in education, inequity, uh will be something of the past we have to remember that s d g force for states that we should have ensure to every kid quality and equity and promote uh, lifelong opportunities for all and and do
0: do you see that that policymakers are sensitized to this they're they're aware of the challenge they're they're thinking about you know, as you say, how do we put in place that you know those those remedial programs? You know, to to allow, and I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I, the the learning loss need not be permanent. You know, you can you can certainly reverse it. You know, for for uh, future cohorts, but my concern primarily would be with you know the the the, the present cohort that that's uh, you know, can we you know and again depending on where they are in the education uh system they will you know they will need more or less you know less uh support but in my view it's incumbent on on us the adults if you will that we you know we we invest in the remediation that we invest in allowing them to uh to to uh, capture what they didn't have the opportunity to capture uh, earlier
1: Well, I don't want to sound too naive, but I lived that in Rio when I was uh, secretary of education of the city of Rio. Uh, Rio is uh, a very unequal city. Brazil is very unequal, but, but Rio is particularly unequal and uh, we in a city that has been already the capital of the country and uh, that uh, has some of the intelligence centers the most uh, important uh, cultural and scientific centers uh kids were not learning at at public schools Pr- Middle class and upper, upper uh, the elites were sending their skills, kids to private schools and the kids of the slums had an unequal chance to learn in public schools. And so what we decided to do is to first uh, wipe from under the carpet the kids that were still illiterate up to sixth grade. And address that issue specifically. So we built very important. That was prior to the to the pandemic. Uh, so uh, we look at the learning difficulties of every child, and we did a, an affirmative action, giving more to the schools that were in the middle of the slums. 155 schools were in areas controlled either by the militias, or the drug dealers. Uh, and there, we paid more the teachers that went, wanted to go there. Uh, we invested much more in professional development. Uh, we uh, gave the best equipments, computers, uh, health support for for kids and teachers, were given to those schools in a program that was called Schools of Tomorrow. In two years, in the national assessment, uh, those schools improved learning outcomes in 33%. And uh, school school evasion was reduced, was halved. Uh, was uh, diminished uh, to half. So uh, it's feasible to deal with the present cohort, but we have, we, we cannot hide those kids. We have to identify them uh, and give them the access to quality education, the, the, the quality of remedial education they need. First, see if we have illiterate kids. That because it's very challenging to, to teach, to read and write at a, a distance, uh, ensure that they have additional hours of learning, uh, ensure that uh, they have the support they need and that their families also have the support they need. And this is feasible. It depends on, on as you mentioned, on good policies and to from civil society to press politicians for this to happen. And even in a situation, and we live in Brazil, unfortunately, with very little support from the federal government, but we, even in this harsh situation, the Congress has changed some laws and regulation to ensure more learning. And we have to bet on that possibility and in additional uh, investment in education, which I hope will happen.
0: Why do you think, Claudia, it's, it's, first of all, I mean, that's that's, uh, a a remarkable achievement, uh, you know, during your tenure, as as secretary of of education of, of of rio and and i mean just in case any of our listeners are uh in any doubt you know rio is 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 a city with with a population i think that that rivals many small countries so yeah. 6 million 6, six billion, million so it's you know it, it's uh you know it, it's it's uh, it's a big place um why do you think it's it doesn't happen more often those kinds of you know targeted interventions you know with with sort of clear uh you know clear beneficial outcomes you know in in a relatively short period of time mm-hmm. i mean 2 years is not uh is not forever why does it not happen more you know frequently in the education space why are we struggling you know with the sdgs with you know and i know this is a very big question but but we don't often hear stories like this.
1: I think there are two factors. First, we don't hear about such stories because we don't build consensus on the importance of public policies. In times of populism, it's much more fashionable to speak about silver bullets that will solve magically all the problems at the same time. For example, to give you just one example, there are people uh, in Brazil right now discussing that what we need is homeschooling, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. Nothing against some homeschooling legal provision existing, but definitely this is not the solution to to education. Uh, And if if they haven't noticed as yet that the the pandemic and this isolation of the kids uh, would showcase that this is not something that will build a solution. Uh, the, The importance of building a cohesive approach to education transformation was taken here in Brazil with some pressure, from civil society, from an organization that was created in 2006 that is called All for Education, in Portuguese, Todos pela Educação. That shows that you have to deal with the attractiveness of the teaching profession uh, and also with uh The pre-service education, changing pre-service education and changing, having some time in uh, in in-service education for collaboration, for learning together, for uh, time not assigned to just giving classes, Uh, also to change the approach to infrastructure having an infrastructure that doesn't need to be sophisticated but needs to have the basics a good school library uh, a good uh, school library some labs and uh, and some classrooms where kids can sit together can uh, have uh, something that in the heat of brazil is not you need even air conditioning to have the possibility of teaching and learn uh, so it's a, it's a, it's not only an approach of the, the, do this one thing and everything will change you have to do some different approaches and that early childhood makes a huge difference Especially having a good preschool for four and five year olds. And that is a way of leveling the playing field. So we didn't do just the approach to the slums. We did it in a context where we created a curriculum, we uh, did some uh, professional development based on that curriculum, we assessed learning, we monitored, we worked. With data, not only with uh, with uh, narratives, uh, so so that helped a lot uh, to make this change in a short time because it was complemented with other approaches.
0: And, and and do you see again? You you spoke, and I I fully endorse. You know what, what you've uh, what you've just articulated, which is. You know, th- th- there is no you know silver bullet solution. You know, it, it, it's a, a multitude of interventions need to happen. But I guess the the hopeful uh, takeaway from you know from from this conversation is, is that it's imminently doable. It's 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 possible to make these uh, interventions and to get them uh, to to stick. Now, uh, you, you you mentioned civil society and the role that civil society played in um advancing um you know certain positive reforms uh in in Brazil do you see the same kind of mobilization happening now you know around what you know what to do post post covid
1: yes certainly at the same time as some people prefer the populist approach because it sounds uh magic and uh uh more connected to some resentment and some suffering that people live in. Uh, I see a huge mobilization that happened not only with education but with food provision because we you can imagine that uh starvation is becoming something that in brazil in 2 years ago we wouldn't imagine that would happen but the civil society organized itself to support food for everyone who is suffering from uh food depri- depri- deprivation uh, and, uh, and then this Todos pela Educação, All for Education, is still very active. But in addition to them, in many states and municipalities, the conscience that something needs to be done and some consensus building on what is this something that needs to be done is being built. Uh, so one thing that I discover is that what you have done in the past, when you live a crisis, can help you recover faster from the present crisis. Uh, so the fact that we have built this consensus before, even in these harsh times, shows us that it is feasible. And it was not only in real In Pernambuco, one of the poorest states in Brazil, or in Ceará, another very poor state in Brazil, where they have improved the quality of education in an impressive way before the crisis. uh, There were good practices, and now we have to discover how to scale those practices into national practices in a way that will recover the present cohort of students that were affected by the crisis and avoid building new learning losses for the next generations.
0: And, and, and at the same time, you know, as, as we discussed earlier, also make this, you know, this pivot, you know, to, to a more flexible, more uh, creative, uh, more agile education system that uh, again i know you have been advocating for uh, for for many many years
1: yes uh, because the main change we will have to have at schools after everything is over and the re- the remedial education have solved some of the issues is we need a, a school that teaches how to think not what to think mm-hmm. but that build independent thinkers, people that w- don't just listen to what their teachers, their vision of the word, and then reproduce it in a test. We need uh, kids that are able to think, to learn, to have a, a journey of lifelong learning and to reinvent, even to reinvent themselves. Uh, because the... Job market of the future won't be uh, built in such a way that you choose a a profession when you are 20 and then you are the rest of your time in that profession in the same company, etc. You will have to reinvent yourself professionally in the future. So, the best thing we can do for our kids is to teach them not only to adapt. But to even to reinvent themselves, if need.
0: Claudia, thank you very much for for joining us today. I'm gonna I'm gonna end there on a on a you know on that on that hopeful note. I mean, I know we could have you know carried on this uh, you know conversation for uh, uh, many more minutes, if if not hours. It is it is a never ending story that uh, you know this this uh, journey of education. How how we can re. Reformulate it and uh, and rethink it. But again, I want to thank you for joining us for sharing your insights uh, with us today.
1: I am the one to thank you, and it was great discussing with you, Stavros. And hopefully, very soon in Qatar again.
0: I, I I very much hope so. We we are hoping to 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 have the Wise Summit at the end of the year, and and would. You know, very much uh, look forward to welcoming uh, you and and many other friends from around the world here. Andrew Jack, welcome uh, back to Wise Words. Thank you. Good to be with you. What did you uh, make of the conversation
2: with uh, Claudia, Andrew? What are your sort of first reactions? Well, first of all, I think it's great hearing from uh, Latin America and Brazil, obviously a really important country in a a region that perhaps particularly in the the sort of the Anglo-Saxon Anglosphere world doesn't get so much attention. Um, And of course, there's a huge amount of um, innovation and activity and philanthropy alongside um, some quite pioneering over the years, of course, social programs to drive um, greater access to the more disadvantaged. So it, it really interesting to hear that situation. Of course, quite tragic in terms of the, the very heavy burden of coronavirus. So very sobering to hear about those challenges. And unfortunately, perhaps at the federal level, not the most enlightened leadership one would have hoped in terms of um tackling coronavirus, but also thinking more generally about um, social policies, including education. So I think uh, at the high level, a kind of sobering reminder of continuing underlying issues of inequality and poverty that are kind of real structural drivers or barriers to improved educational outcomes. And then, of course, overlaid in the last year or so by um, a kind of quite challenging and in some ways kind of uh, underpowered response, particularly at the federal level to uh, tackling coronavirus, which of course has had a huge, if not disproportionate, burden on uh school age children and yet all that said i think uh, you know coming out of the conversation a good reminder that there are these real hotspots of innovation and uh activities at the local level very often and commitments by communities and by teachers themselves whatever the level of funding or political willingness to to respond and try to adjust to the pandemic
0: yeah no and and i was you know i was um preparing my uh my little intro to uh, to to the episode and and reflecting on you know why we should care about you know Latin America, uh, I mean beyond the the obvious sort of human human interest uh, that we should you know we should have for every part of the world, uh, it is in in many ways um, the the arena in which you know some of our most uh, intractable challenges are. Presenting at their most acute. So, if you take uh, inequality, uh, for instance, I think the UN has Latin America as perhaps the most unequal uh, region in our world, and it's you know it, it's a condition and a situation that goes back, of course, many many years, has roots in 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 uh, the region's particular history. But it it is you know it is an arena where you know we see the the global challenge of inequality play out, yeah. perhaps in its most extreme form. And then of course there's, there are also all the challenges to do with you know with with the environment and climate change and the deforestation of the Amazon. Again, you know it, it this part of the world is where all of these things are playing out, and and therefore observing the responses and the policy approaches to. Tackling some of these challenges, i think I think becomes very very pertinent,
2: yeah, I think both both covid and climate change, as you say, the role of the Amazon, the role of the so-called Brazilian variant, um, they they are reminders of how uh, interrelated, you know, and how, how much uh, we can't ignore what's happening in other parts of the world. And of course, it's a huge, Brazil itself is a huge economy, a big population, um, so a big impact. And as you say, also kind of a very long-standing legacy of inequalities. But that means there's, Pockets of wealth and resource, um, which have driven lots of innovation and, of course, a very active, um, I suppose, community-based sort of response as well, which has also driven responses and in innovation uh, even from more neglected or poorer Communities, so yes, it's a really interesting place to to look for um, both tensions, but also um, positive responses to many policy issues, including education.
0: Absolutely, and you know, once again, we we heard I think some very um, encouraging and, and indeed inspiring stories about the you know the, the role that, that teachers have have played in uh, in in stepping up and going you know going the extra mile, doing uh, above and beyond what. Uh, one might have expected of them just to sort of keep keep the learning going making sure that that learning material reached the kids even in uh, in some of the most remote regions uh, of the country
2: yes i mean it, brazil obviously has been a a template or maybe an extreme example of of, of a lot of the the trends that we've seen both the longer term challenges in education but also particularly the impact of the pandemic on schooling and so that resonated to, to hear a lot of those points yes about as you say the engagement uh, and a kind of fresh focus and understanding of the importance of teachers um, the connections uh, intensifying relationships perhaps with parents and the wider communities outside school the links between you know, the the more kind of core pedagogical um, challenges and actions, but the, the, but those wider structural barriers around um, poverty, around food and nutrition for, for many uh, children from lower income backgrounds. And of course, the huge issue of the digital divide and therefore the access or lack of it to technology to allow continued and remote learning. And I think, you know, obviously now, like in many other countries, the focus is partly on clearly how to return to school, how to assess and make up for, for lost time and learning in recent months, but, but also the important nuance of not just thinking about, as it were, academic achievement and, and, and basic kind of core educational skills, but that whole social and emotional side, given the the big stresses that children have, have been through in recent months
0: no absolutely and uh, I mean, what, one of the topics that we we touched on uh, uh, quite a bit with uh, uh, with claudia was you know the, the the sort of different uh layers of government and and what they did or didn't weren't able to do uh to to, to support uh, educational continuity what what do you make i mean it, Setting aside the particularities of the political situation of in Brazil at the moment, what does that tell you about the desirability of otherwise of having you know sort of you know highly decentralized education systems? Is is there is there any sort of generalizable learning that we can you know draw from from this experience, whether you know thinking about Brazil or you know in our earlier discussion with Rukmini about uh, uh, a similar sort of model of education that you see in India as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on Brazil. And I think that, um, you know, it's, yes, it's it's quite difficult to draw very high level lessons. Um, I mean, I, I think overall, um, and I think, you know, you could apply this to public health in the context of COVID, uh, or to general political uh, structures around the world. Um, the more Local people and communities are empowered uh, the better in terms of both tapping their resources, um, getting engagement, holding local political and other decision making leaders uh, to account um, so on the one hand, I think you know it 's really important that uh, Right down to the level of the individual student and parent and teacher, there's sufficient empowerment to be able to, to be flexible in response. Um, and just in the in the same way as there's a big an international debate and discussion at the moment in education about um, assessing uh, where children have got to. Um, And therefore, then trying to respond in a more personalized way to adapt to where the child is in their development, um, as opposed to some more traditional approach of thinking about, you know, they're this age, they should have achieved this much there's a kind of more blanket approach so i think the at the level of implementation and at the level of empowerment and accountability it's really important to kind of decentralize and clearly varied approaches and responses do allow for innovation uh, whereas if you have a kind of top down federal or central government trying to dictate I mean, it's just not going to work for a start because of the large number of um, actors involved and the complexities individually. On the other hand, I think clearly there, are, um, there is growing need for a kind of feeding up through the system from the from the grassroots as it were the classroom level should we say to to school system to um regional federal um, local governments and so on and indeed internationally uh, and, and with access to researchers and so on to understand and interpret what we're finding on the ground and indeed try to then clearly bring different levels of governance together to share best practices and try to implement and to some degree and depending on the political culture that obviously will require commitment from federal as well as regional administrations for example to kind of coordinate and to resource and prioritize hopefully
0: what, what about sort of coordination coordinating role i mean claudia made made reference to that a you know, quite a few times in terms of, you know, perhaps the lack of coordination that was, you know, coming from the center. I mean, again, particularly, I think, in times of, of crisis, yes, the, you know, local autonomy and initiative gives you, you know, the flexibility to, to adapt, but then that adaptation runs the risk of being very uneven, absent a sort of coordinating body that can uh, direct resources and expertise where, where those are needed the most
2: yeah I think i mean that that resonated very much i mean clearly in as far as possible there's a need for for data and insights and best practices to be shared and then for kind of nimble responses where you know kind of better results are being demonstrated and clearly um higher levels of government up to up to national and federal levels in different countries um, should absolutely be involved in that and perhaps be setting some general guidelines and facilitating, and as we discussed, resourcing, um, rather than necessarily then dictating or going, you know, kind of too far down the chain of command to try to impose a particular response. And of course, the more one has decentralised accountability, um, hopefully the more then there will be pressure locally if there's understanding. Of you know better practices elsewhere to drive and implement those in the different uh, places uh, around a country, or indeed more generally around the world. So yeah, so I think um, I think that's that's incredibly important, and it's a lesson that we need to see a lot more of. Though, as we've discussed before, of course, you know, education is clearly only one amongst many priorities, and perhaps very often does tend to fall off the um, the agenda when policymakers, politicians are working on relatively short uh, election cycles when education is so difficult to kind of track and measure and to demonstrate results in the relatively short term. And when, particularly in like the current era, there are so many other pressing priorities for kind of adaptation, response, reconstruction economically and socially in the in the kind of later stages of the pandemic.
0: Um, another sort of recurring theme, you know, that, that I saw is uh, is the one around you know the, the the newfound again appreciation and respect you know for for teachers and the teaching profession in general and I think, you know, you know, Claudia expressed that, you know, very, uh, uh very well. And, and then also, uh, in a sense expressed the hope that, you know, this newfound appreciation would translate into investment in the professional development of, uh, and training of, of teachers. Is that, I mean, that that's something we've heard, I think, you know, throughout the, uh, the, the sort of conversations that, uh, we we've been having with, with folks around the world. Do you, do you see that? And again, I think we, you know, we 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 mentioned it last time, though that it in parallel there's also this burnout and this uh, challenge of, you know, retaining teachers post-COVID. How how do you see that you know playing out? Are you are you seeing policymakers really ready to step up and and invest more in the teaching profession in in
2: in the hopes of of retaining uh, the, these folks? i think the short answer in generally is probably unfortunately no you know more generally as you say uh, i i think there there've been multiple phases in the in the pandemic uh I think early on, yes, clearly to some degree there was an appreciation and value of teachers, but I think a lot of parents, uh, as they themselves struggled with their children being at home and trying to balance that with other priorities, including work um, or care uh, for kind of those who were who were sick, um, meant there was a lot of also early frustration with 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 some teachers and schools for kind of, you know, in their view, perhaps not being able to continue to take on the, the burden of um, education for their children. Clearly, different schools and teachers had different levels of response, and that was a function of all sorts of things in, to, in terms of expertise and resourcing and, and support that they had. I think perhaps over time, clearly when, you know, many parents with homeschooling taking place in a forced way, uh, will have emerged realising that it's a mighty difficult task to teach and support children and schools and teachers therefore do play a really incredibly important um, role. So it would be nice to think the, you know, in general, that the respect for the importance of education has risen. I mean, I'm sorry to say, though, I think that... um, you know, there are so many other priorities and stresses and concerns at the moment um, that it's not necessarily yet being translated in many countries to a, you know, a huge increase of resources in the short term or yet the sort of perhaps radical rethinking of education that, that you know, is we do now have the opportunity for and we need to consider more seriously. <clears throat> and as you say, um, and as we discussed before for teachers and indeed in a different sector in in the healthcare sector you know i certainly continue to hear a lot of anecdotal cases of of um uh, folks at all levels who are saying uh, you know we'll get through this because we have to but beyond it might well look to change job or retire potentially early because they themselves are also burnt out so i think some you know prom- promising ground in principle some real challenges in terms of prioritization and focus in practice about how far that will lead to um, you know, other the big opportunity that there is potentially ahead.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a sort of sobering note on which to sort of end our uh our reflection on the conversation with uh Claudia. But but again, thank you for that, Andrew. And uh let me uh let me ask what else has been on your radar these past a uh, few weeks, I I saw you had a a piece on executive education in uh, in uh, in the Financial Times a couple of days ago. What were your
2: uh, I- insights uh, there that you were sharing with? Yeah, I mean, at the higher education level, uh, yeah, we just came out with our our latest annual assessment looking at executive education. So this is really um, what skills uh, future managers and leaders in companies and other organisations are looking for and how they're trying to train them. And I think the high-level messages are, um, clearly there was a huge period of belt tightening and a pulling back from training, which hit business schools and many other providers uh, in an already disrupted space where technology, online courses, all sorts of non-traditional education institutions are getting involved in training. Um, I think the kind of the bright spot out of that is, you know, there are new approaches that um, online, whoever is the provider, Offers potential for a greater democratization of continuing learning and training. So, a lot of employers are now looking at training as actually a really important investment, um, partly for retention of staff after demotivation, as well as for promotion and equipping the right groups, and also thinking beyond perhaps more senior people to a kind of giving a wider range of training resources to a larger group within. Uh, companies and other, other organizations. So that's at the higher education level. Um, the other thing in recent weeks, we've come out with another series of articles in our investing education series, which is very much focused on um, what governments, donors, countries need to do, particularly in primary school level and more basic education uh, around the world. Because of course, we're coming towards the the summer when the UK is hosting the G7 meeting and co-hosting the Global Partnership for Education funding round for the coming years. Um, And so there's an increasing attention on what policymakers need to do. And The big debate there amongst others is, you know, what age, what types of intervention need greater focus? Certainly, it seems to me, the level of data, the mechanisms for accountability remain very weak. The variety of potential programmes is good in some ways, but perhaps risks not providing enough prioritisation and therefore kind of perhaps disabating best efforts and risking leaving us further behind on top of COVID in efforts to achieve the fourth sustainable development goal around educational outcomes by the end of this decade. So there's a real need for perhaps greater focus, a redoubling of efforts and accountability around all of that, the need for a focus on so-called foundational learning, early years education, and then basic literacy and numeracy as the building blocks on which to advance into secondary and hopefully then go on to a um, rewarding uh, life uh, after school that's the second area of focus. The the other thing I've uh, written about actually is more EU, UK focused um, and of course on top of uh, sadly big cuts to aid that we've seen in the UK in the last few weeks which are raising lots of concerns in education, in health and beyond, and could risk being own goals for the UK. We've also seen the sort of the post-Brexit implications of new immigration controls that are, for example, making it much more difficult for um, young uh, students as au pairs or as language assistants or interns to come to the UK to continue to kind of ensure that healthy interaction and build up a more kind of internationally focused and connected next generation and just a final area, yes, which, you know, we, we, we launched through our schools program a number of uh, competitions. So we recently also published the outcome of a sort of call out to students around the world that we did with the World Bank um, talking about essentially what the next generation, those still in school or recently left, would themselves uh, advise in terms of post-COVID recovery. And to me, uh, this is a theme we've talked about before. I think one high-level message is around um, the the power, but the real challenges of technology, both in terms of um, varied levels of access to it, of course, very, very strong message, um, but also... Uh, the need for flexibility and adaptation. You can't, just as we know, flip from a kind of in-person classroom to exactly the same format and content and style when you're dealing remote. Um, some people, of course, are on at best SMS or relying on radio or television. Others may have access to more sophisticated devices. But in all of those contexts, a, a clear message, I think, for many of the students is, you know, you need to adapt. Um, and again, that sort of, despite, you know, in principle, the younger generation being very tech savvy, I think a real sense that they feel they've missed out on personal interactions, face-to-face experiences. And again, those of social emotional skills and a real appetite to return in person to school and and think of education in the future in a very different way and not one that's just purely driven by technology either, which, but in which indeed, Going back to our earlier point, the role of teachers and of human interaction is just absolutely fundamental.
0: Becomes critical, absolutely, and and yeah, and, and again, the the you know the presence of of the digital divide also necessitates you know governments really to to start thinking from now about investing to uh, to, to bridge that, which is something that uh, also came up, I think, in your uh, investing in education report. Not just to, you know, repair the learning loss, but also to, you know, to put in place mechanisms to allow everyone uh, to benefit from what technology has to offer.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think clearly there is a role for technology. Um, there needs to be an awful lot more kind of rigorous drilling down to understand where it's most relevant and to kind of measure continually what value or what potential side effects as it were are being created around it and to and to build it into a much more holistic approach to how education is delivered and what the what the resources are so yes i mean a lot of the kind of you know there was this discussion wasn't there in general and including in an education about building back better you know there's there's more of a phrase now about you know building forwards better and not just essentially trying to catch up or remediate after a period of of loss or slow down or intensified sort of limitations over the past year but to really think more boldly about um, a different sort of education for the future and it's not just about catching up it's about um, really elevating in different ways approaches and content and insights for uh, the coming cohorts going through schools around the world.
0: Um, Absolutely. Andrew, always a pleasure to have you uh, with us on the podcast. Thank you for uh, being
2: on Wise Words. A pleasure. Great, great to be here. Look forward to the next one.
3: This is Basim Hijazi, producer of the Wise Words podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into the show where we discuss all things education with some of the world's leading thinkers and doers. What did you think of this episode? We'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback, and you can reach out to us anytime on our social media channels, which you can find in the description. And of course, if you're new to the show, please do consider subscribing for more episodes just like this one. As Stavros mentioned in the intro, this season we're going to be taking a look at some of the world's post-pandemic priorities for education, and we recently published episodes focusing on the United States, India, and China in combination with this one on Latin America. So stay tuned on our social media channels to be informed on our next episode set to release in June 2021. And finally, if you're tuning in on an iPhone or Mac, consider leaving us a review on Apple or iTunes as that really helps out the show. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in and hope to see you again next time on Wise Words.
0: claudia
1: thank you did you like the uh, the conversation? Yeah, yeah
0: no absolutely how how did you feel about it
1: great great yeah
0: That's yeah a
1: great opportunity uh and congratulations on on the podcast Very well no good. i mean
0: we you know thank you it's it's uh i would say it's 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 become a you know an important uh channel for us to you know to communicate and and to stay in touch with people as well during these uh you know these these times now that we you know we, we can't do our in person uh yes uh, activities as much as we would like uh this is a good way to you know to to connect with folks to see how they're doing what they're thinking and you know um it, it's great and and you know I'm glad i mean you know professionally i'm glad that things are you know, are going well. The center sounds, you know, very, very exciting. And of course, uh, uh, I was aware of Getulio Vargas from um, my time in Singapore. Ah. They were, uh, you know, they they were one of the universities we wanted to partner with on on public policy. So um, you're obviously in a very good place. (laughs)
1: okay thank you very much and nice talking to you bye-bye
0: thanks Claudia we'll be in touch bye-bye